so right away, something that we are doing in this series that is different than the other series. Uh, we're kind of dividing this series. It's, it's, it's going to be in two parts. And so in these opening weeks, we are looking at Peter the disciple, but later on, we're going to look at Peter the church leader and elder as we take a look through some of his writings in the New Testament. But as I've done the first couple of weeks, we have a big idea, all right? We have, we have this big idea for the series. It's pretty straightforward, very simple. The big idea for the series, and you should see this on the screen as well, the life of Simon Peter proves that while we may fail, fall, doubt, embarrass ourselves, and even turn our back on our friends, we can still be restored and remain a faithful follower to the way of Jesus. Uh, go ahead. This is the third week you've heard this. Next week, I'm not even going to read it. You're going to read it back to me. You're going to tell me because you're going to be memorized by then. And that's going to be a very good thing. Now, for those who enjoy a good history lesson, today is definitely for you. I got my undergrad in history, so I'll try not to make this a lecture. All right. You, you didn't come here for a college lecture on history. However, the context and history here is so important and reveals so much truth about the conversation Jesus and Peter and the rest of the disciples are having. Uh, the story we have today takes place, uh, you can read about it in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark actually tell us where the story takes place, and that is significant. Uh, go ahead and put this map on the screen for me, if you wouldn't mind, Lily. Um, so the, our story today takes place in Caesarea Philippi. And in that time, there were not many Jewish people there. In fact, the majority of people were pagans and Gentiles. And so if it's kind of hard to see, that's okay. I put a big red dot at the top. So Caesarea Philippi is, is a little further north. If you recall, last week we were on the Sea of Galilee. That is pretty far down in comparison to where we were. Now the question is, so, so if this location is significant, like why? Well, in case you didn't know, Jesus was Jewish. That may shock some of you. He was Jewish, okay? And, and these disciples, they were used to that culture. And, and so why go to Caesarea Philippi if you're a minority? Remember, the majority of people in that area are pagan and Gentiles. Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi to ask them two questions. And we'll get to that in a moment. Just as a refresher, we have been in Capernaum, Bethsaida. And again, last week, we were on the Sea of Galilee. Peter was then under the Sea of Galilee for a moment, but then he got back above it. And now we are in Caesarea Philippi, which is near the base of Mount Hermon. And it was renamed after former Roman Emperor Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar, he ruled 27 BC to 1480 when he died. And that seems to be one of the most important dashes of time to live, right? If you don't know, that's, he's overlapping right here with Jesus. Caesar also made use of kings who ruled over specific regions. And one of them you will probably recognize. His name was King Herod. That is the same King Herod that ordered the execution of all baby boys two and younger in and around Bethlehem. Well, after Herod's death, Herod's son, Philip, he took over and he renamed the area to honor Augustus Caesar. You're kind of picking up. People really, really thought highly of the Caesars. 
So Caesarea Philippi was called Panay before this, and that was because of the pagans and Gentiles who lived in the area. They worshiped Pan. That's the god of nature. And there are still ancient ruins that exist today of these temples to Pan, but one temple was actually reworked. And it was reworked and repurposed to worship Augustus Caesar because, and this may be very interesting to you, people believed the emperors were literally gods. Now, Augustus Caesar, he was not the son of Julius Caesar. Okay, you may be familiar with the name Julius Caesar. Well, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, but Julius then eventually adopted him and he became his adopted son. And this is why in ancient writings you will find Augustus Caesar referred to as the quote unquote adopted son of God. So here is why this matters. Here is why I'm painting this picture for you. Caesarea Philippi is rich in pagan history, false religion, and emperor worship. So one might think that's the last place that a Yahweh-loving Jewish man or woman should go, right? If that is what they're about, why would we go over there? We have places just like this today. And often, I will hear Christians who will condemn even visiting places like this for fear of pagan history, false religion, and worship of certain political leaders but Jesus doesn't just go there and do a prayer walk. Jesus doesn't just show up in Caesarea Philippi and, and go to lunch because they have a great lunch place and then go back home, like maybe some of us will treat the highlands at times, you know, uh, to his Jewish friendly region. But Jesus, he takes his young and impressionable disciples to this area and he asks them two important questions. Go with me in verse 13. Look at this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? He's referring to himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So there's the first question, okay? Right there, number one, the first question. Who do people say that I am? Because at this point, Jesus has done some public teaching He's prayed and he's healed some people. He's gathered large crowds. They've witnessed miracles. Jesus is a notable man with a growing following. Now Jesus is curious. So he asks, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me at this point? And the disciples are honest with him. They said, uh, we think you might, uh, they think you might be John the Baptist. If you're unfamiliar, John the Baptist was essentially a local hero, for lack of a better word. People really liked him. But at this point in the story, John the Baptist had been beheaded. So some thought Jesus was actually John brought back to life or that John never died and this is the same person. Anyone else kind of think back to like, man, conspiracy theories have always been around, haven't they? They're just always like, Today, we tell people, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Back then, it was, hey, don't believe everything you hear at the water well, I guess. I don't know. But what matters, here's why I'm bringing this up. What matters is that the disciples report 
hey, these people don't know. They're confused. Some say John the Baptist. Others say you are Elijah. And this is because of a prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, that says Elijah would come back. So some believe Jesus was actually Elijah preparing the way for who would be the Messiah. Uh, The disciples also say maybe Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, he's not just sitting over here right now. He was actually an Old Testament prophet, and uh, he had prophesied about the eventual Messiah to come. But hear this, okay, hear this. This This is why it's so important. To this point, these disciples had not heard anyone say, Jesus is the Messiah. No one had said that. Because if they had, they would have told him, hey, actually, some, someone said you might be the Messiah. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, they don't know who you are. But if anyone thought Jesus was the Son of God, they would have said it then and there. And this is not a, popular, a popularized belief because it's not a belief by anyone at this point. And so Jesus, he asks this question. The disciples respond this way, And so Jesus takes that in. And remember, remember where he asks this question, here in Caesarea Philippi, where the backdrop is people worshiping leaders and pagan gods and all the things Jesus could ask. He asks them something that needs an answer from you and I as well today. In verse 15, you'll see this on the screen. Jesus asks, what about you? Who do you say I am? And so that's our second question today. Who do you say that I am? Some say you're this person, some say that. And this still happens all the time with Jesus today. People will say, yeah, I'm good with Jesus. Like he's, he's good. It's his followers that need some work. Uh, but we're cool, I'm cool with Jesus. Or they'll say, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Jesus was a great example of love. That is not what Jesus is asking of us. It's just like the crowds of that day. You're you're kind of in the ballpark, but you're still completely misunderstanding who he is, his purpose and his mission to save sinners. So who do you say Jesus is? Is he a pretty good example of love? Of love your enemies? Who is Jesus? So these disciples are standing there. They're talking with Jesus. They're having this back and forth. But... But in, in my mind, when I consider this question, it reminds me of like grade school when a teacher asks a question and people are kind of afraid to answer. Does that ever ha- has that ever happened to you? You know, like the teacher asks a question and there's just silence in the classroom and everyone's kind of like, oh, I don't know. You know, we're all kind of looking at each other. All of a sudden we got to go sharpen a pencil. I kind of like see Jesus in my mind and asks, so who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, someone has to fix their sandal strap. So anyone going to answer him? I'm busy. Or, you know, they're kicking a rock or something. Like, they're just looking down, hands in their pockets. Did they have pockets? I don't know. That's not in the Bible. But, you know, I, in my head, the disciples have their hands in their pockets. They don't really know how to answer. And sometimes we're embarrassed to answer because we don't want to get it wrong right? And so these things go into my mind as Jesus asks this very, very important question, and maybe they're thinking about this, and, and then someone says something. Peter steps up, and look what he says in verse 16. Peter says, 
you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's the same Simon Peter that went fishing during the day when Jesus asked him to. This is the same Simon Peter that stepped out of that perfectly safe boat with, with all of his friends and, and they stayed behind. Uh, it's that Simon Peter now that takes the lead and answers the question, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the true son of God. And of all places to ask this question, Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by worship of, of false gods and paganism, Peter boldly says, Jesus, you are God. That is such a bold thing to say. And there is something else. Take a quick look at this coin from first century Rome. Go ahead and put that coin up on the screen. Whether you can see it well or not, I'll, I'll explain what this is. So this is Caesar Augustus. And that's what it says on the left side in Latin. It says Augustus. And then on the right side of that coin is DVF. And that stood for the son of God. If Julius Caesar was God and Caesar Augustus was the son of God, you get the idea. And these coins at the time of this conversation are in circulation. Perhaps even in the bags of the disciples, in the pockets that may or may not have existed of the disciples in this moment. Jesus is asking this question, so who am I to you? The backdrop is false worship and paganism and, and some form of nationalism, it seems, of the emperors. They have these coins with the images of the local gods right there in their bags. And what does Peter boldly say? All of this stuff around. He says, Jesus, you're God. And of course, we're on the other side of the New Testament. We have 2,000 plus years of theology with us. So we may not have said exactly that to, to Jesus, but maybe we, we would have ver, uh, uh, phrased it as like, you're the savior. But it's the same thing. You, you see that? So, so what does Jesus now say to this? Where Peter says, I know we're surrounded by false gods and all this like crazy stuff, but Jesus, I believe you're the way. You're the savior, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. However, we wanna phrase it. Peter says this. That takes boldness, right? Look what Jesus responds with. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. I've underlined that. We will come back to that. Where did Peter get this knowledge from? His father in heaven, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, if you think back to week one for a quick second, we talked about Jesus renaming Simon to Peter and Peter meaning rock. He probably didn't know the significance of that. Rock was just a cool nickname. 2000 years later, it's still a pretty cool nickname. One guy has it, we all think he's cool. That's just how it is. So rock was just a cool nickname. But now Jesus does what I would call some appointing. You call me Messiah. I call you the rock. Let's start this ecclesia, this assembly of believers. Let's start this church. And you know what? This thing we're gonna start, this ecclesia, the gates of hell won't overcome it. 
that's what we're going to do together. Now, one super quick, if you can call it quick, theological thought. We won't get into all the doctrine of this, okay? So, so kind of deep breath, but whatever, all right? Uh, we have some Catholic friends that believe Peter is the actual rock that Jesus has given authority to, that, that Peter is the first official pope installed by Jesus in this moment, and that the popes and bishops appointed since then, how long has that been? A minute, right? It's been a while. All popes and bishops appointed since Peter fall into the same authority sanctioned by Jesus. Um, but that is not something that uh, we Protestants believe. But here is why, and this is why it's important, okay? We believe that Jesus' words here are in response to Peter's affirmation, not Peter the person. That Jesus is the Christ, not on the person of Peter. Does that make sense? That, that, that Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And on this cornerstone, on the affirmation that I am Christ, on that, we're gonna build this church because this isn't about Peter. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus being the son of God, the savior of the world, the promised Messiah. And Jesus' response is built on that truth, not on the elevation of Peter above everybody else, not on Peter the person, but Jesus is building his church on Peter's statement of faith. And Jesus continues to build his church on that same statement of faith by us today. Jesus is Lord, Christ, Messiah, Savior. It goes on and on and on. Now, go into verse 19 with me really quick. Look at this. Jesus then says something really interesting. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of confusion about this phrase. What does it mean Jesus is telling Peter, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed. What is going on? Well, again, just another quick thought. If I can call these quick, I don't know, but that's what I'm calling them. Quick little thing. Uh, this had a lot to do with the law of Moses at the time. If a question came up to a rabbi, you know, like, hey, can we do this under the law? More or less, is God okay with this? Which we're still asking, I think, constantly today. Hey, is God good with this thing? Because I'd like to do this thing. People are exactly the same, okay? We still ask that question. So essentially, people would come to the rabbis of their day. Can we do this thing? If the rabbi bound it, he would say, no, you cannot do that. It's forbidden by the law. But if it were loosened, then he would say, yes, you can do that under the law. People have always had theological questions and it's nothing new, okay? And so now Jesus is telling Peter, moving forward, Peter, you will have the authority to interpret scripture and practice church authority. This idea was not lost on them, even though they may not fully understand it on its face uh, that day. Uh, it's not lost on them because Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Well, just so you know, back then cities were fortified. They actually had walls around the city. That would be giant if Louisville went with something like that. I, I don't see why they would, but back then they needed to. And there was a lock on the gate. And usually only one person had the key to it. 
And Jesus is using a very modern, for them, modern illustration. Hey, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to this. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And as leaders of the church, you will now have the ability and the authority to lead. That's what Jesus is doing here, okay? Now, to, to move on in this story, I'm going to ask you to do something really, really difficult. Church, I'm going to ask you to forget what's happening next. I'm going to ask you to forget actually what's going on. And I want you to put yourself in Peter's position for just a moment, okay? Because this is, this is really important. Um, if you are Peter here, Jesus just said, Peter, you have been appointed to help lead this. You're going you're gonna to be my number two, if you will. Like, let's, we're going to do this together, and, I've, and, and I'm going to give you authority in this kingdom. If you're Peter, maybe you don't fully understand this, but I'm all about leadership. Yeah. And Jesus seems to be starting something new. This sounds great. Peter, at this point, feels pretty good about what Jesus has told him. Peter, it's going to come through you, and I'm going to give you the keys and we're going to do this together in this new kingdom. Peter's probably, after this conversation, he's like, listen, I didn't want to be president. I'll take vice president because everyone knows that's the best job in the world. You do, you do nothing and you look good. That's all you got to do. And Peter's probably thinking this. This sounds great. Let's go, baby. But Jesus is about to humble Peter very quickly with some very difficult truth. I'll unpack, let's read it and then I'll unpack it for us. Verse 20 he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Okay, Jesus had a, had a plan and a purpose. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Peter did not have that in mind at all for right here. He likely believed Jesus was ready to overthrow the Roman government and start a rebellion and a movement. And Peter gets to play a lead part in that. But that's not what Jesus lays out for him, is it? That's not what he has said. Jesus says, it actually won't be the Romans at all. But once we get to Jerusalem... It'll be those religious leaders and they will cause us to suffer. They will harass us. They will arrest, arrest and ultimately kill me. Now, how would you respond to Jesus in this? Jesus just said, hey man, that's my interpretation, okay, whatever. Uh, hey man, you're, you're gonna help lead this. Keys of the kingdom, they're yours. You ready? Because here comes suffering you're going to be arrested. We're going to be persecuted for this thing. I think Peter is going to respond like most of us would. Peter gets mad. And here is the flawed yet faithful disciple of Peter. Here he is, verse 22. Peter took him aside. That's Jesus. Peter took him aside. Now this is bold for the wrong reasons. He began to rebuke Jesus. Never, never the move. I want to throw that out there. Don't do that. But Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Here's what's happening. Peter, 
He just doesn't understand at this point what kind of king Jesus is. And here's where I don't mean to offend, but it is simply true. There are people who will say, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian. There are people who will say, I'm a Christian today, but you suffer the same problem. They do not understand that Jesus of scripture, and they think it's about power and influence and rebellion. And because that is what they believe about Jesus, they are ready to go to war for Jesus. But Jesus is not asking anyone to go to war against other people on his behalf. Jesus is actually saying, in my kingdom, people are going to suffer simply for believing in me. Whoo, Jesus, I didn't know I, didn't know I signed up for this. People will die simply because they love me. All sorts of evil will happen to you because of your commitment to me. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read these amazing words, but take heart. You are not alone. Take heart. I am with you. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I have overcome the world. Listen, I don't know what you've been told about Jesus, but following Jesus does not come with health, wealth, and prosperity. And while I obviously believe in the favor and blessings of God, Jesus tells us your suffering for my sake is inevitable. How could Jesus promise us health, wealth, and prosperity when he died on a Roman cross at the age of 33? Peter is scolding Jesus. Jesus, this will not happen to you. You're ushering in a new kingdom. There's a rebellion and a movement that's coming. We're, we're gonna have great things come our way. Jesus, what are you talking about? Kind of like see why, like, oh, wow. Like Peter had this in mind. We were gonna overthrow the Romans. We were gonna do these things. And I don't mean to project everything on the Peter. It's just for a man in his place at his time and, and you read different things about Peter, this is what he has in mind. And look how Jesus responds to Peter rebuking Jesus. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 23, Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Look what's underlined. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Church, do you see the parallel here? Moments earlier, maybe minutes earlier, Peter stands up, declares, Jesus, you are the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. It is Jesus' way or no way. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get that yourself. My heavenly father gave you that thought. And you're right. Jesus says it, that it is, this is all on that affirmation of faith and that he's gonna build this church. But now, Moments later, minutes later. Whoa, 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 Peter. You are not thinking with God in mind anymore. You do not have concerns about the kingdom of God anymore. You are only thinking of yourself, and that's human. You've gone from this rock to a stumbling block in record time. And while that's bad, I think we would all say, okay, yeah, Peter, you really missed the mark there, man. You, you misread the room, okay? Like, you really didn't get this right. That's bad. You can be human, okay? Um, but Jesus, I don't know. I don't go around calling people the devil. Like, uh, you know, Jesus, like, should you say this to Peter? There's something else happening here I, I, I want to show you. 
If, if you remember, Jesus experienced something that I think we're sitting here right now and we've kind of forgotten about, that we're not seeing the connection. Because Jesus remembers, remembers a situation where he was promised worldly kingdoms and dominion over the world and anything he could ever want from this earth. Who made those promises to Jesus? Anyone remember? Who made those promises to Jesus? So Jesus, in Matthew 4, at the end of 40 days of fasting and prayer in the wilderness, Jesus faces incredible temptation, and yet he resists. And here Jesus is, all this time later, spending so much time with these guys. And you know what? It's exciting because it seems like one of them's getting it. Jesus was fully human, okay? He limited himself to the human experience. Jesus is excited that someone's getting it. It's Peter. And he realizes you are the son of God. And so you affirm him. You affirm that declaration of faith. But moments later, after you tell your friends what has to happen, that you must suffer, that you must go to a cross and you must die, but then you're gonna be raised to life, that same man who had just affirmed you are the Messiah, that same guy reminds you of one of the most difficult moments of your life. And it's because his priorities are actually in line with the one who tempted you when you were at your lowest. Appropriately enough, Jesus tells Peter how those priorities align with Satan's priorities because Satan did not want Jesus to pursue the cross. Peter, right here, does not want Jesus to pursue the cross. You just talked about the kingdom that we were gonna build, we were gonna rebel, we were gonna do a movement. Now you're talking about suffering. No way! I don't wanna be part of that. Jesus, this won't happen to you. And so honestly, appropriately so, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he's essentially said, get behind me, Satan. He's essentially said, Peter, you have aligned yourself with the pursuit of everything this world could offer. And Satan tempted me in the same way. Get behind me, get behind me. You don't understand my kingdom. You don't understand my purpose. You don't understand my love for my people. You do not understand that I'm gonna need to suffer to save them. And then Jesus gives the requirements of being a disciple. And so if you are here today, and you're like, listen, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm dipping my toe into it. Let's see what this is about. I know to this point, this hasn't been necessarily exciting. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of, a lot of like uh, dark things you've, you've said about this guy. I thought he was all about love and peace, right? Well, here's where Jesus lays out. Here's the requirements for being a disciple. Here's what it looks like. Verse 24, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. And you know what? Nothing's changed in 2000 years. The requirements for following Jesus look the same. The first, self-denial. No one wants that. That's not how you lead a sales pitch, if you will. Self-denial. No one likes that. No one wants that. I actually want more things. I want nice things. I want status. I want influence. I want power. I want to have what I want to have. 
Now listen, this is not about not enjoying life or not enjoying things, but this is about priorities. Self-denial lived out simply means we remember who owns our stuff and who owns our lives. A simple prayer to remind yourself of this is God, I will go without so others can have. I wanna deny myself things so other people can have. Another element to being a disciple of Jesus, it is sacrifice. Again, I don't think a lot of us are, are volunteering for sacrifice right away. But it's this idea, you pick up your cross each day. That's a sacrifice. Meaning to belong to Jesus is a sacrifice. And most of our lives, it's probably not been an issue here in the United States to sacrifice our lives. You know, Christians, we're, we're not really being persecuted for faith in Jesus. No one outside this building is threatening us. And while that does happen elsewhere in the world, that's just not our reality at this point. But that's not always been true for Christians worldwide. We actually are living in a minority in history. And so the question is, am I willing to sacrifice my comfort and my cultural acceptance to belong to Jesus? Am I willing to sacrifice those things? And then third, how I phrase this, is practicing the way. Because early on in this movement, people believed this was just another type of Judaism. And, and, and people would call it, it's the way, capital W. It's the way, or it's the way of Jesus, that obscure carpenter. It's, it's the way of Jesus. And this is kind of throughout the New Testament. You can find it in the Gospels talking about the way of Jesus. And so for us as a church, we believe that we are to be practicing the way of Jesus. And this is pretty straightforward. And honestly, uh, this, is, this is where faith really makes its biggest impact. To practice the way of Jesus is to practice mercy. It's to practice love. It's to practice loving your enemies. Will you practice forgiving the unforgivable inside yourself? Will you practice forgiving the unforgivable in others? These are tall orders, right? It's like Jesus, man, like, Again, you talked about suffering and now we're talking about sacrificial love and, and what it is to forgive enemies. This is not really what I'm about right now. This is not where I wanna be. But this is what practicing the way of Jesus looks like, practicing radical generosity. Will you be willing to practice the way of Jesus? There is so much more and yet there isn't at all. It is, it is simply following the way of Jesus. And look how this ends in verse 25. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And this is an absolutely beautiful paradox. And it's true because when you lay down your plans and you lay down your will and you lay down your priorities, 
to pick up the way of Jesus, you will find purpose. You will know peace. And you will experience a love that changes everything. But it starts with this statement of belief. We've come full circle, okay? It starts with a statement of belief. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Savior. And so church, our question today is who do you say Jesus is?